Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Brendan here with Mark Vet. Gurus.com episode 9494, Friday, August the 2nd, Mark. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a little bit depressed, Mark, as no. we were talking. We were talking about a few things before we started, but I'm depressed for another reason as well, Mark, and that's because Le Tour has finished. The Tour de France is over. I, I, as I mentioned in my review last week, I thoroughly enjoyed it and um, it was good to see the Colombian win and um, the yellow jersey at the end, and also the Australian win on Champs-Élysées. Um, at the end, um, in the final stage there in Paris, um, the Australian sprinter won, um, and, and I think he's won. He won three stages, Mark. God, I've gone blank on his name, um, which I'm going to get yelled at with um, emails, especially from Kathy. Hello, Kathy. <laughs> it'll come to me. Um, it'll come to me soon. But yeah, I've th- thoroughly enjoyed it, Mark. And as we were chatting off air, um, I finally acquired my little um, spin bike to use at home—a little exercise bike, sort of made for people who like to. Do cycling, Brendan. And, does it, um, I, I know that. Um, I know through our discussion that you've been looking at Zwift and Sufferfest. Um, do, do they have? Do, can you do the the, um, the 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 tour in your lounge room? <laughs> well, you can. There's another. Well, so what? What the hell am I talking we're about? Or are we talking about? We're talking about apps or um, programs that you can link with your with your indoor bicycle um so you can be looking at your tv screen or your ipad or whatever and um you see yourself there as a virtual a virtual brendan um in all his glories trying to cycle up the mountain and yes um there's probably a half a dozen of these programs there mark and i've just been trying i've spent a very frustrating um afternoon today mark trying to as as i sort of Swore a few times to you um, before we started recording, trying to get the get some of these apps going, um, and I think I've sort of worked out what I what I need, what I'm missing apart from fitness. Um, but yeah, they they have HD um, high definition sort of footage of of the actual places, um, but it, some of them even include um, um, local places for 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 us wow. um, as well. So there's. Um, like Ballarat here in 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 Victoria, Mark. The the, the route they use on the Cadell Evans um, ride, and and um, yeah, so there's lots and lots of places, and and one of them is a, a sort of user um, a, um, run um, cyclist sort of zone where they go out and record all these places. It's an Italian sort of um, website, but it's in English as well, and all these free. Um, HD recordings of, of places where people have driven or ridden and um, recorded it. So I think it'll be useful because, you know, it'll give me a bit of motivation because all I really want to do is to jump on the bike and get a little bit of aerobic activity going a few times a week. And um, if I'm staring at a screen, at, at the TV there, and it, it's pretending that I'm that I'm cycling through a, a little French village or something, it'll be good. Although if that happens, Mark, I think I'll be stopping every time uh-huh. I see a little bakery or something in the, on the TV. So, yeah, so that's what I've been doing today. But, yeah, 
as you well know, Mark, I was a, I was a tad frustrated. And, yeah, that um, that um, one of those acts called um, Sufferfest, it sounded good, and I think my life is Sufferfest at the moment. I'm trying to get this going. So that's what I've been up to, Mark, but enough cycling um, information. Well, what I have you been I was doing? Just reflecting on my rather pathetic efforts to, with, you know, I uh, live near Lake Macquarie and um, Lake Macquarie is the largest estuarine lake on the east coast of Australia and um, the council here has put a wonderful pathway around uh, a significant part of the edge of the lake and um, improve the quality of the lake, that, that part of the lake um, for both the wildlife and the people attending it attending the edge of the lake and um, the path is suitable for like it's wide enough to walk on and cycle on so I do get my bike out and cycle around there the only thing Brendan is that it's hugely embarrassing when everybody goes past me and I'm just like going fast especially like. when they're walking <laughs> <laughs> so so even though you're, you're sitting in your lounge room and uh, doing your spin bike work um, I suspect you'd You'd probably still go past me as well, but does get the heart rate oh, up. No, I don't. Oh, I don't think so, Mark. Um, and I just remembered it's Caleb Ewan who uh, who won the final stage of the tour, Mark. Um, yes, um, good. Yes, no. And I must must admit, I've I've still got to get out there again. I, I know I keep saying every week to you that I've I've got to go and do this little photo um, photo expedition that I want to do locally just around the corner and I've got a couple of ideas on what I want to do which I still haven't told you because I haven't got out there again but I've been pottering around with other things but anyway enough about me Mark and enough about you I think we've got an email that you need to chat about. I did want to um, just uh, uh, um, ask you to because you do this wonderful promotion about our Patreon um, page and um, and, uh, one of our patrons is um is my my son ren and i did uh i was speaking to him last night about podcasting and he said uh even even though i think he's um at the lowest rung the the uh what what's it whatever what are our stages um lower no, than no, no, you know how um, levels oh. we have levels of sponsorship Yes, I will look it up. You keep talking and I will look it up well, while well, you he, chat. Well, we're singing out for some recognition. So here it is. We really appreciate uh, Renwick and everyone else. It's uh, uh, um, it, uh, We were talking about the various costs associated with podcasts and um, they do mount up. And so every little bit that uh, people contribute is very, very much appreciated. Our sponsors and our patrons um, make a big difference to us, Brendan. Yes, and that is patreon.com vet gurus. Um, and let me have a look. So, yeah, there is a, a bug. <laughs> a bug is the $1, $1 a supporter. So that is $1 per month, $1 Australian. So if you're in the US or the UK or Europe, gee, it's going to cost you nothing. Nothing, is it? Nothing. So you should jump up to being a rabbit instead, which is $2 per month. Or a kangaroo, hop to it, $5 per month. A bearded dragon, which is $10 per month or more, and I think we do have one bearded dragon. That may be, may be Sandy. Um, and we still have yet to get a guru, which is somebody who will support us for $50 a month. And there's different there's – different, there's different um, – what do you want to call it? There's different um, – uh, 
reasons why you might want to become um, those different levels because if you become a guru, um, we'll come out and interview you. <laughs> um, and if you become a bearded dragon, you'll receive a, a shout-out on the podcast and we'll mention your website or your favourite sporting team or whatever. Um, and if you want to become an echidna, which is the $20 a month, um, we'll even do a private audio recording remotely um, with you. So there's there's benefits is what I was going to say. There's benefits. Um, friends with benefits is what it is, we it's are, a, Mark, it's a although not that, not that type of friends <laughs> with benefits um, that my children talk about, which is something <laughs> completely different. Um, we're not that type of friends with benefits. But, yeah, so it's it's something that we'd, we'd love to get a few more patrons. Um, and the tip to everybody, Mark, is that you do not, although it says it's a monthly join up and become a patron and it will automatically debit you that amount every month, you could just do it for one month or two months or, or six months and just cancel it so you don't have to do it forever. And, and so it, don't think that... All, every little bit is appreciated. And we just love the connection too, Brendan. And that reminds me of of um, George's email that um, yes. uh, Georgia sent us an email uh, very flatteringly saying that she loves our show. Um, she was listening to an episode oh, maybe 10 or 11 ago and, uh, and there was a story on that episode about... Um, um, we were talking about uh, chickens with their um, heads going missing and we were talking about the uh, foxes causing that problem. But in George's chicken fancier groups, instead of foxes doing this sort of behaviour, quolls have been implicated for ripping heads off and leaving bodies of poultry um, in the yard. And um, so, Brendan, I did a little bit of... Uh, we're lucky to have a number of uh, local pockets of area here that um, that uh, that support a number of quolls. And I had a great time when I was in Bruni about 12 months ago uh, chasing various birds and other wildlife, and we did see a few uh, quolls down there as well. So it was a question that really touched an area of interest for me. Um, and I there are a number of stories. If you do a search online, you will find a number of stories uh, reported in the, you know, the mainstream um, media, the, the um, yes. local news of various areas, which talk about uh, um, quolls uh, taking heads off chickens. But I think that what I'd say there is um, that if the quolls leave the bodies behind, it's because they've been interrupted. They really are um, very unlikely to do the you know, domestic dog or a playful fox thing and just um, kill for practice or for sport or, have, you know, whatever um, anthropomorphic attribution we give to those behaviours, that's not typical of quolls. And generally, if they do leave a kill, um, it's because they're uh, fairly flighty and they've been disturbed. Um, and certainly the, the, uh, the reports I've read in the... Um, you know, uh, general literature in newspapers and local newspapers and on the radio and whatever, there generally is a, a theme that someone's come across the quolls or banged around or heard something happening to the chickens and checked it out um, uh, and um, and the quolls have, 
uh, buggered off and left the chickens. And they certainly do, in um, affecting a kill, they certainly do grab the neck and and uh, give it an almighty shake, bite through. So uh, decapitating them is probably the first thing they do, and um, and then they generally will consume um, a significant portion of the chicken uh, if left to their own devices. Um, so it is important, I think, um, for people in uh, areas where quolls are... They seem to, in a number of areas, be making a bit of a resurgence. Um, they do breed very well, and if... Uh, if the uh, competing predators are taken out of the mix, they will build up populations fairly quickly. And if you're in a farm area that's adjacent to some state forest or national park that has quolls, you definitely need to create a very secure uh, poultry refuge, night refuge. The chook shed has to be really secure, Brendan. They will get in through... If you can put your fist through a hole... They will get in. They have no trouble crawling over six-foot floppy fences that would generally stop foxes, so a roof is necessary, or locking the chickens away in the coop overnight is important. Yes, it is amazing how many... I just hate to think how many chickens in suburbia worldwide have been have been attacked and killed by all these predators, Mark. Um, we actually had um, one of my nurses last week or the, or the week before, um, the two neighbouring dogs dug under the fence and into the chicken coop and, and killed them all. Um, actually, all of them except for one, which Belinda, um, the other vet at my practice, um, ended up having to euthanise um, because it was brought into the clinic still alive. So she's decided she's not going to have chickens for a while now. So, But, gee, it's such a common thing, isn't it, with the with the chickens being um, attacked. Um, and, yeah, you, you're certainly right in that they need to be pretty solid coops, don't they, um, in order to stop um, these animals getting in there, Mark. And, yeah, thanks for... That email, Georgia, a very, very interesting email. And, Mark, I I did see a quoll on a plane you once. Saw on a plane. On a, on a, I saw a quoll on an aeroplane once, yeah. Um, in fact, I, um, he, didn't, it, he didn't check any luggage in, Mark, because he just carried on. He just had carry on. <laughs> Whoops, I messed it up there, didn't I? I messed it up there, yes. Uh, so there you go. Thank you for that. Um, it's all um, in the delivery. Joke, Mark. <laughs> Thank you. It's all in the delivery. Yes, it is, Mark. Okay. So I don't think we – do you have a, re, a review this week? I certainly no, no. don't. Let's get um, on to – Let's jump into some news. I'll take the first one, Mark, and that's just a short one here, and it's a, bit, it's a report from the um, uh, Veterinary News Online in the UK, and it's about uh, scientists at the Animal Health Trust – have developed a DNA test for progressive retinal atrophy, or PRA, in giant schnauzers, which, interestingly enough, is a previously undiagnosed condition in the breed. So PRA, Mark, I certainly... Um, okay, oh, it's probably rarely that I diagnose a dog with, with PRA, um, even though there's over 100 dog breeds that have been um, identified with it. Um, and, yeah, they've developed a, a test for it. Um, I'm just trying to just scroll down here. Um, they discovered the mutation, um, that there was a causal mutation with it, um, which was a single letter change in the 2.4 billion letter DNA code of the schnauzer. They discovered the mutation occurs in approximately one in 35 giant schnauzers, Mark. Um, so there we go. As this condition in the giant schnauzer is quite rare, 
according to the research assistant, Rebecca. Um, we're not expecting to find many affected dogs through DNA testing, but it's crucial to identify any carriers in order to prevent any more puppies being born with this condition. So there you go. Do you see many PRA cases I in wouldn't your process? We definitely see some, um, particularly in Border Collies, and um, we, we've noticed a little bit of a rise in the number of Australian shepherds, um, the sheepdogs, very much like um, Border Collies, that, uh, and they're another recognised breed that, um, that uh, uh, PRA occurs in. Um, I think the good thing here in Australia is that, um, that these tests, which the article you'd you're discussing talks about um, there's a very proactive uh, sort of tone amongst the breed clubs to get the dogs uh, tested Um, and it is a recessive uh, recessively passed on recessively inherited genetic disease and so the key thing is to identify those carrier animals um, and prevent them from uh, being reproductively active and most of the breed clubs who have uh, that genetic uh, predisposition, that genetic um, uh, fault. They they're pretty they're pretty good at getting insisting that uh, their club members get their dogs tested, and I think um, the rates have dropped precipitously now that uh, DNA tests like the one that's being uh, designed for the the uh, giant schnauzers have become more commonplace. Yes, <laughs> it's well, frustrating. It's a frustrating disease because if if it an is. animal gets the double dose of the gene, um, then there's pretty much nothing. They're going to go blind. There's nothing you can do and uh, there's no treatment. And um, and that, fortunately, they're not in pain. And, um, and the good thing is that um, fortunately dogs don't, uh, you know, they're not as visually dependent as humans are. Um, so they do tend to cope well, but it's always, you know, that, the owners who yeah. suffer, yeah, I think more, yeah, it is. They get quite distressed, don't they? Um, but, yeah, I think the animal, um, the dog itself, um, often cope very well, especially if the, if they're um, then maybe confined or an inside-only animal, Mark, um, for the little breeds um, or, um, or have a backyard where you're not moving things around, um, you know, and the owners may forget that they that their dog um, doesn't, doesn't actually see anymore until they move move furniture around or, or move house, and then they realise that hey, they're bumping into things again. Until they work out where they where everything is again. Yeah, um, I was trying to do a segue to your first. Okay, um, let, let first me have a story, but I can't. So anyway, yes, it is. Um, My first, first news story, story is titled <laughs> "When Lions Attack Porcupines, Humans Suffer Unexpected Consequences." Now, when I first saw the the uh, the clickbait headline, um, I thought, I didn't know what to think, to be honest with you. I thought maybe, maybe the, I don't know. Anyway, the story, I, I thought that the <laughs> lions would be more angry having been prickled by the porcupines and somehow they were nastier to people, which in a sense is um, is the, you know, in a very distant sense is the essence of the story. In 1965, there was a famous line known locally as the man-eater of Darajani. Um, and uh, and uh, in typical, I'm sure if he would have been a meme if the internet had been around then, um, uh, but this lion attacked a Kenyan hunter. 
Um, and the, the uh, Kenyan hunter wasn't the only one attacked and the story was published in a American magazine, Outdoor Life, and um, and it became a little bit of a, a, a you know popular culture thing. The lion was eventually um, killed in southern Kenya after several attacks and it was discovered that the lion in question had a porcupine quill sticking out of its nose um, and... Uh, Recently, that lion's carcass um, was uh, examined um, uh, and um, Julian Kerbis-Pitans uh, at Chicago's Roosevelt University um, discovered that the quill had penetrated more than 15 centimetres through the philtrum of the cat's nose, um, nearly reaching the point where it uh, passed through the olfactory bulb and entered the poor cat's brain. Um, and so the quill was almost certainly, they, uh, Kervis Peter Hans uh, deduces, uh, the reason that the um, that the lion became a man-eater, almost certainly being forced, you know, um, being in constant pain and having trouble uh, keeping up with the healthy lions, um, the lion would have been shunted off on its own. It would have had trouble hunting, would have become emaciated, forced more and more to dangerous outskirts of territory and then in desperation targeted humans, um, which is, I don't know, sounds fairly logical to me, Brendan. Yes, it does. It does. And the paper, gee, it's interesting. Some of the some of these research papers that people come <laughs> up with, Mark, isn't it amazing? Um, so they detailed, I think, 40 cases of lions that were seriously injured by the animal's quills and another 10 instances where they were outright, outright killed um, from trying to eat porcupines. Um, but, yes, it, it certainly makes sense there, Mark. And um, the um, I was just... The reason why I hesitated there, I was just looking at the pictures from that story. It was from a National Geographic story and um, I felt a bit sad when I saw the picture of um, the man-eater um, of Darajani, the lion, um, that black and white photo from 1965 um, with that porcupine quill sticking out of its snout as they, after they um, killed it. Um, yeah. Um, and then they've got a couple of pictures of some young um, cubs um, playing with a porcupine, haven't they? Um, playing with death, I think, um, there. Um, yeah, so, no, good story, Mark, a good story. And, again, I don't <laughs> think I have a segue to my next story, um, although I do because it's related it to is. pain, isn't it? Um, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons why um, they'll only attack that particular species when they're really struggling and they haven't got any other food sources there. And, my yeah, my last news story is about insects, feel persistent pain after injury, the evidence suggests. And it's a study in the peer-reviewed journal Science Advances, which has offered the first genetic evidence of what causes chronic pain in Drosophila um, fruit flies um, and that there's good evidence that similar changes also drive chronic pain in humans. Um, did you ever do Drosophila um, studies in your biology? We did. We had Drosophila melanogaster cultures and we did some genetics studies with them when we were at university, when those things were permitted. And the reason why I say that is on this story here, um, 
Sophie, my youngest, um, is doing biology, and I'm sure, and she's doing genetics as well. So I'm sure at some stage they'll do the old, the old experiments with the Drosophila fruit flies, um, looking at the genetics of them, because I think that's a classic experiment, isn't it, um, with them? So should they be doing it? Um, because she's quite anti using animals um if we can um which which um i agree with there um but getting back to this article mark the ongoing research into the mechanisms that could lead to the development of treatments um that target um chronic pain not just in insects mark but um in humans as well as what they were looking at so and obviously um a lot of people don't think um insects will feel any kind of pain or nociception as we um as we talk about in insects um so what they did is they did um something painful to those uh, those um those fruit pies mark they um they were looking at neuropathic pain and um what they did the um um, the associate professor nearly and his lead author um, damaged the nerve in one leg of a fruit fly and the injury was then allowed to fully heal and after after the injury healed they found the fly's other legs became hypersensitive and um, they tried to protect themselves for the rest of their lives um, with it and this is a bit that I thought was quite out of industry. Um, the researchers thought, gee, that's kind of cool. <laughs> um, let's cause a bit of pain to these um, flies and see what happens. That's cool. Um, and then the, the article goes on uh, talking about that then they um, tried to dissect, um, no pun intended there, Mark, um, how it all worked and the um, neuropathic pathways um, with that reaction with those Drosophila flies there, Mark. Um, so the bottom line is um, that um, they're, they're fairly um, fairly certain that um, there's neuropathic pain in in inverted uh, quote marks there um, do occur in in these flies, and um, then perhaps they're going to use them as a method to test um, methods and and causes for chronic neuropathic pain in animals, which. I suppose it doesn't help um, the flies much, does it, Mark, for, for reducing um, the number of animals or insects um, being, being used in these things. But um, So I'm a bit equivocal with my thoughts on this one, Mark, about um, whether it's good or bad, um, this particular study. What, what do you think? I, I think, well, I'm the same as you. I sort of have a foot in. This is one where I'm a foot in a foot. both camps. <laughs> I, 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 I definitely I, I know the way that universities are these days, that there will be ethics committees that um, even with invertebrates, the scientists have to present a really, um, you know, a, a, a program for minimising pain or um, or uh, in these circumstances, I'm sure they would, um, there would be, you know, t- there'd be limitations in time and whatnot. Um, and, and I do, you know, um, there are serious issues for chronic pain in humans as we live longer and longer and this sort of research is um is you know uh, foundational to solving those problems um and so i i think it's much more complex than just never do it um i think if you decide to do these things in the full knowledge that you're asking the animals whatever they are flies or mice or um or more complicated organisms um then you really you know, you need to be able to justify it. So that's sort of me sitting on the fence, I suppose. Yes. No, well, 
I think the the difficulty there is that what happens if if there's a particular illness or, or problem that that um, you then suffer directly and and the cure for it is something that's been you know obviously developed or, or researched through the use of um, use of animals there then gee you, you, I think most people are unlikely to to say no to that um, but I think it's that whole ethics ethics committee and making sure that um, you know people are pre- as strict as they can be or, or, or do the old, the three R's mark which I'm trying to remember what the three of them are it's reduce reuse and <laughs> it's, it's recycle or that some other one but it's 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 reduce the numbers it's um, refine the results or something I can't remember because I did used to be on an ethics committee many years ago but I can't remember but um, there's a there's a logical um, process that you need to go through to try and limit the the number of animals that you use um, in any of these um, research um, experiments and um, making sure people think twice and three times about using them which is good um, but yeah I, I think somewhere along the line um, um, it's like humans being used as guinea pigs as well you know we need to we need to test um, test some of these um, products and things in order to for the greater good but where do you draw the line, Mark? Um, and we can start that discussion with the um, philosophical <laughs> podcast that we um, that your son um, decides to decides to um, start. So yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll all be chatting about those sorts of things. What's your last news story, well, Mark? Just um, keeping with the, the uh, philosophical theme, I thought I'd talk about giant, murderous, ancient, prehistoric birds. Um, previously, it was only thought that. Um, that gigantic birds uh, occurred in the southern hemisphere, particularly um, Madagascar, New Zealand with the moa um, and obviously in Australia. Um, But there's been a recent uh, discovery of a specimen um, in the Torida Cave on the north coast of the Black Sea which suggests there was a a bird um, as big as the Madagascan giant elephant bird um, and bigger than the New Zealand mower. Um, and what's really interesting is that the, um, that the site at which the fossil was found um, it would appear to be a place that humans may have dumped their rubbish. So uh, there are a number of other species there. Um, and um, and it may be the thought is that maybe these were species that um, that humans, the first humans, uh, uh, 1.5 to 2 million years ago, when they arrived in Europe from Africa, that uh, that these um, giant birds may have uh, provided part of their diet, may have been hunted. It's estimated, judging by the bone that they found. Um, the uh, the femur um, that the bird uh, was, and it was quite a while, I think, from the time that the bone was discovered until it was analysed, but um, the structure of the bone and the size of the bone suggested that the bird weighed 450 kilograms, which would have made it stand about um, ten, about the height of a, um, a bit, no, a bit more than the height of a basketball um ring about uh, three and a half meters um so crikeys it would have been a bloody good meal um and it would i imagine have been a geez an exciting hunt um because i think a lot of these um 
Well, I think I don't I don't think these were herbivorous birds. Just let me say that for the moment, Brendan. I think it would have been a, a fairly exciting hunt to come back with Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> in those days. That's a big bird, isn't it, Mark? That is a, a big bird, yes. Um and speaking of birds. You have got a segue. You finally found a segue. I finally found one. Our main topic this week is avian reproduction. But I ha- I do have a oh, review. Good. I just realised, Mark, I do have a review. Um, it's a very quick one. It is something I have my hand on right at this moment. And it is the, let me have a look here. It is a Logitech Pebble um, mouse. And um, I changed the wireless mouse I have been using, Mark, because the one that I did have previously, which is a keyboard, an, another Logitech combined keyboard and, and wireless mouse, was very clicky. And um, I, it, it made very big click whenever I was clicking it and looking, um, swapping between web pages. So I didn't like it because I could see a little spike in the um, sound when we were recording, Mark. And I know in previous podcasts that I've listened to, I could hear this little click in the background. So it was giving me the irrits. So I wanted to stop that happening. So I've changed it to a a virtually silent clicking wireless mouse, Mark. So um, hopefully those of you who have been annoyed with my clicking noises in the background um, as they're driving along and they can hear it, they won't be able to hear it anymore because it's Virtually silent. Hey, we'll so give there us a you quick, go. Um, while we're um, all here listening, click it off a few times and let's see how quiet. I've, I've, I've clicked it about 30 times while I've been t- saying that, Mark. I've been, I, I am clicking between three different web, web pages wow. as I speak. Not, um, not hear a thing. Hear anything? Yeah. There you go. So that is the, um, the Logitech Pebble um, wireless mouse, and it is connected. You can connect it via Bluetooth, um, so um, or you can connect it via the little dongle, um, and you put it into a USB port um, on your computer, which I didn't bother. I've just got it on Bluetooth, so I don't have to plug anything into anything else. So there you go, and it's a very very solid nine out of ten. How's wow. that? Um, so, that yeah, that's um, big, and it's. No, it's good. It's very ergonomic, and I think they call it the pebble because it looks a little bit like a pebble, I suppose. Yeah. So I wish I wish I'd been sitting in on that, uh, you know, marketing meeting where they're tossing it around to each other. <laughs> yeah. What were we calling? So this? to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, they probably did exactly that. They tossed it around, and one said, "Hey, this looks like a pebble." Um, so there we go. Yes. <laughs> So there we go. So that's um, back to my segue. Yes, so we were t- we, our main topic this week is avian reproduction. So in previous podcasts, we have spoken a little bit about um, when things go wrong, especially with chickens and um, and reproductive problems in those, those female chickens there, Mark. But I thought we could go back to the basics with avian reproduction and, and get back to um, sort of, you know, how does it happen? Um, how do we deal with it to, to, to try and make things happen properly and we end up with lots of little little birdies and and the approach to the problem case um, from a client perspective is things go wrong. So, And I thought this I, was a great topic, Brendan, because it is, there is sort of, um, I divide uh, avian reproduction into sort of two broad groups of problems. There's the, the pet bird series of problems, um, but, uh, and we've talked at 
at uh, a number of times about some of the specific issues that pet birds get. Um, but it is quite common for us to get aviculturists who are specifically trying to get birds to breed and, um, and uh, you know, after a season or two and nothing's happening, that's when they might seek the expert advice of a veterinarian with an interest in avian matters. And, um, and so it's a good thing to talk about, I think. Yes, it is. So I think we'll approach it from those that sort of client perspective, or that or that consultation, Mark. Um, so they come in um, asking how how do we how do we deal with this? We have some birds and we want to breed them. So you know, I, I think the first thing to to talk about, Mark, is you know how do they do it? You know, what what's the process? What what's different with the mating process and and the requirements for for a setup? If you have a fairly naive client who who say they've bought um, a supposed breeding pair of, of budgerigars, for instance, um, what do you start chatting to them about? Well, <laughs> where do you start? Um, I think the key thing uh, in these circumstances where I have a consultation like this is that uh, is I, I suppose I'm trying to wind back the expectation now by that I mean um, usually when people have had their you know maybe they're a newbie and they've got budgies or maybe they're they're very experienced and they've got um, uh, um, some uh, blue fronted Amazons or whatever when they come into a vet, they feel, they will definitely feel that they've done everything possible to make these birds breed, and they're then looking for what I think of as high order solutions um, to get to the root of the problem. And part of the art of that first consult is to wind things back. And you've hit the nail on the head with the question, "How do they do it, Brendan?" Because I've definitely had some. Uh, cockatoo breeders who have brought me their um, black cockatoos and um, and you look at the male bird and he has bad case of um, metabolic bone disease and he cannot weight bear normally on his legs um, and so that particular bird is going to really struggle to uh, adopt the correct position on the uh, the back of his um his partner balance there correctly oppose his cloaca because um, most of the birds we're dealing with there are some that have intramissive organs the the um the some waterfowl ducks and swans and some rat heights but most of the species we're dealing with just simply um, oppose the cloaca they have a small version of the the um, opening of the reproductive tract, which meets up. Um, but they need, obviously, fairly precise physical um, apposition. And if they've, if they've got a significant injury or if the female has um, uh, osteoarthritis or maybe she has um, uh, metabolic bone disease herself and she can't bear the weight of the male, maybe uh, we, we've had cases where um, a particular bird when a budgerigar, when she was young, had a fight and lost a couple of toes, and so she couldn't grip the perch and she couldn't uh, maintain the position. So I think it is very uh, appropriate to think about those simple things. Are the birds going to be able to adopt the position? Are they compatible? Are they socially compatible? So many people think that they will just stick uh, this male budgie with this female budgie and 
little baby budgies will ensue. Um, but um, like all animals, they have personalities. Their behaviour is influenced by their upbringing. Some of these hand-reared birds will not even know that they're meant to mate with a feathered companion. Um, and so uh, working your way through all those um, initial questions, um, dialing back the client's expectations from, you know, a high-powered endoscopy, doing a testicular biopsy to assess sperm production. Um, those things may be necessary, but um, I find they're the end point after a lot of other work's been done, Brendan. So, and that just reminded me of, of, of a, another question, Mark. Do you, get, do you have many bird owners that purchase birds from the same clutch and then they bring them in and say oh we're going to breed these um similar to the you know you get a dog or a cat breeder coming in and they say oh if, you know here's here's the two dogs i have boy and a girl and um they just happen to be from the same litter and we're going to breed from them and then you have to go and explain the bit about perhaps um it's not a great idea to breed from these very related um Animals. Um, does that happen very often? It happens often enough that you do have to um, point out to people that um, that attempting that breeding um, is, you know, is likely not to ideal. reinforce um, deleterious genes, and it, yeah, it's not a good way to move forward. Um, and it often is the case too that um, even if they are able to um, convince those birds to to breed, they, they generally, if they've been reared together, there will be some natural history you know some aspect of their behavior which will discourage them and sometimes that can be overcome by the nature of husbandry um, but um, but yeah it is a thing that we do need to talk about with some clients that um, that it's a good thing to try and generate some hybrid vigor by um, uh, using um, individuals that are not uh, very closely related for sure do you how strongly do you suggest that they don't breed from those animals oh, we just about uh, from uh, animals from the same clutch <laughs> yes. we would just about say just uh, we would you know mandate that they don't do it it's uh um there are there's i don't i can't even i was just trying to imagine you know the the um programs like for the orange bellied parrot where um where there is going to be some um uh, relatives. In fact, it's interesting. We just had um, a flock of um, uh, regent honey eaters um, uh, of that very rare bird who um, who uh, set up shop amongst some trees just north of Newcastle, and um, yes. and the uh, captive breeding program, which has been very very successful. It would appear that uh, not only have the released birds there's been a number of released birds now but a number of those birds uh, obviously tagged have turned up uh, um, several years after release but also they're following the migratory pathways that the birds would usually follow so that program is very very successful but it's had no new genetic material for um, since 2011 or 2012 and so uh, a significant flock of birds in one place with some juveniles um, recently bred juveniles um, allowed uh, the recovery team and Taronga Zoo to, uh, to collect a couple of birds to add to the captive breeding program. And uh, 
and expand the genetic material. So I'm, I'm trying. I cannot think of a circumstance where I would suggest it's good that, uh, or even permissible for clutch mates to breed. Yes. Well, I think you've answered the question. <laughs> <laughs> so, what other requirements do you um, mention to the client if they say if you go through that process of identifying that? Hey, yeah, she's. They're probably, hopefully, up up to the process of of, of mating sometime in the future, and um, you think they are potentially compatible. And you've identified that you do indeed have one male and one female, um, and that we don't have two of the same same sex. And there, that's a good um, point too, what, because um, many yes. of the clients that come to us will there's a number of um, uh, what what I often refer to as direct to client DNA services, um, and so the client will take a sample from their bird and send it to um, these laboratories who will flick them back a, a, a sex determination certificate. Um, and they're, they're, I'm not having a go at them, Brendan. I'm not sort of disrespecting them. They're by and large right. But I think that any time we're talking about DNA, we have to be aware of the fact that it's just another... Um, test another laboratory test and it has a margin for error and um, sometimes uh, those birds particularly for the the you know um, some of the species that uh, are not sexually dimorphic they can be very hard to tell even and so dna can lead you astray sometimes particularly with unusual species so um, i think uh, um, sticking the scope in if we think there's any doubt about uh, the sex of a bird um, sticking the scope in and having an eyeball is an excellent thing to do and confirming that you do have a pair that's always the starting point absolutely absolutely so we have a pair there. So what do we do next, Matt? What, what other basic requirements do you suggest for the client to, if they're still really keen on, on, on getting a, um, a little family going? Well, I think it's uh, the next thing is to really work on understanding the species because there is a wide variety of, um, of different circumstances, of different husbandry that goes into um, each individual uh, pair. There's one of the things that we commonly see, for example, with um, with people who breed the large parrots like macaws, is that they will develop a significant collection of maybe four or five pairs of these birds in quite you know generous aviaries. But if those aviaries are side by side, those birds will uh, will definitely feel like their territory is being impinged by birds in the adjacent aviary, and they don't necessarily have to bite each other. They don't even necessarily have to appear hugely stressed, but the stress of that proximity and visual stimulation from birds in the adjacent aviary can be enough to stop reproductive activity. So understanding the specific characteristics of the species. Another one that's interesting is um, the Gouldian finch. We have lots of clients who breed Gouldian finches, and they... um, they really require some very careful and specific husbandry which switches them between a period of uh, relatively poor nutrition and austere phase um, and then uh, subsequently gives them a flush of high-quality nutrition. Now, if those birds are fed the same stuff all year round, um, the hormonal signals that come about at the time of the change from austere to 
generous uh, nutrition don't occur. And so the birds won't breed. They won't develop the, or they won't breed properly. So understanding some of those individual husbandry requirements, also setting up, um, you know, the the um, aviaries in such a way that the normal um, lighting, the, the temperatures, the things that would mimic their natural behaviour, the nest sites, making sure that if you're talking about parrots that the the, uh, the logs are of sufficient size and orientation, they often have particular uh, uh, sized entrances or depth of hollows that are going to make it much easier for them to go on and breed successfully. Are there any particular websites that you recommend for clients to look at that are that are quite good with 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 basic um you know set up and, and and breeding advice that you point clients to or not um probably uh it really varies between the species um and i think this is one of those situations where um where the generalist information only takes you so far and you do have to really particularly get involved with um, you know the 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 aviculturists and the experts who deal with those particular species that you're interested in. Um, so so probably not one single website, but there's a number that are that are worth having a look at. I reckon. Yes. Okay. And with you mentioned lighting, um, it's probably a bit too. We don't want to go down this um, <laughs> this rabbit hole, Mark. There, but um, do many. Do many people, I suppose, advanced aviculturists will will use um, photo period and um, um, trick the birds into breeding at various times of the year by by having indoor setups and adjusting the photo period and from changing it from sort of um, you know winter to spring and 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 um, setting off all the hormones and that. Did, did, have you had any dealings with that? It definitely is the case that. Um particularly for um, some of the more domesticated species, canaries or um, some of the domestic lines of budgerigars that are kept in cabinets in, in uh, indoor aviary facilities that, um, that lighting can play a role. Here in Australia where we have such uh, temperate, by and large, conditions um, in the outdoor environment, most of the people that we're dealing with uh, and most of the species we get to see uh, outside, we certainly talk to them about lighting um, in one of the things that uh, that certainly plays a role in how well the birds sit is how safe they feel. And so if there is a dim light associated with the aviary complex outside um, that allows the birds to recognise, you know, maybe a let's hypothetically say a cat is wandering through the yard. Um, if they know that that's happening, if they can see that that uh, predator, then they can take more reasonable steps. Whereas if they can't and they get a fright, they'll often explosively get off the nest and maybe damage the eggs in the process. So there are some tricks to lighting them and they are, once again, species specific. Um, uh, luckily in Australia, we don't have to do that too much, but there are parts of the world where avicultural enterprises are largely taken inside for those um, really cold parts of the year. Okay, and that's something I think we will cover. We we should do um, advanced sort of reproductive um, issues or, or, or programs um, in birds and and reptiles and our mammals at some stage, Mark. So, but getting back to the basics again, what else do we need? Um, what other requirements for that that basic setup? So you talk about um, 
You talk about temperature and lighting, um, the seasonal aspects. What what else do you need to talk to the client about that needs to be right in order for them to do the job? Well, once we've got the birds, uh, we've got a suitable pair. We've made sure that they're physically capable. They don't have bony problems. They don't have um, uh, compatibility problems. Um, We make sure they've got suitable perches on which to mate we've organized their whatever species specific nutrition whether it be some sort of uh, flush or increase in nutrition we make sure that happens at the right time of year with respect to lighting so often in the spring as the weather warms and the days lengthen Um, and sometimes uh, that nutrition might even involve uh, you know for some of those finches there will be a switch from um, a plain seed diet to include things like um, uh, um, insect larvae or um, some other high protein source. Once you've done all that and they've made a nest, they've either used a nest box or created a a, uh, a nest in a, um, a, a box or um, in a bush or whatever, um, then just making sure they feel secure at that time. And, and oftentimes um, it depends on the individual bird's personality, but people have to be very um, careful about inspecting too much and certainly that's probably one of the things that we find with novice uh, bird keepers who maybe have cockatiels or lovebirds or budgerigars they there's a real you know um, excitement and interest and they're often poking their their head just into the nest box and just checking out how things are going and um, and certainly birds will Um, feel a lack of security if that's happening on a regular basis and even if they're relatively tame birds who trust the people who are looking in the birds interpret that access to be a genuine danger and even though a person they know might be looking in they do think that um, that sometimes it might not be a person and so they're much more likely to abandon those young birds. Um, So I think once you've got um, the birds to that stage letting them if you've got all those other factors working well, encouraging the clients to um, let them go through the process without intervening excessively at that point once they have eggs um, is a good thing to do. Yes. So let's jump forward because we're almost out of time, Mark. (laughs) Let's jump forward and assume that we have eggs. Um, Well, let's not. Um, (laughs) What... um, what, um, a couple of uh, a couple of tips or, or, or comments about um, the nest, Mark. Um, that what's required there, and, and maybe just stick to common species that that people may keep and um, common configurations. Just stick to the you know two or three most common birds that you would see people breeding at home. Um, are there any do's and don'ts some, about the nest? There's some good ones, Brendan, and and. Um one of the common things that we would see is um, uh, is the incidence of things like splayed legs. Um, so in a circumstance where maybe the young birds are on a, a, uh, a relatively um, slippery substrate at the bottom of the box, or maybe no substrate at all, um, and there um, will, you know, um, there will be a period of time where their bones are soft and they, they weigh more um, and oftentimes that can lead to um, deformities, particularly as they try to, you know, repeatedly adopt that 
tripod position with their feet on the ground and the crop resting on the ground. And if the substrate's inappropriate, then that will cause problems. So making sure that it's, um, you know, we use things like um, uh, wood chips or, depending on the size of the bird, trying to make sure that there's some reasonably absorbent um, substrate. We'll sometimes use um, the the, in the hospital where we're dealing with little birds, we'll use the um, newspaper kitty litter. Um, so making sure that the box or um, uh, nest box is of suitable size and having suitable substrate for the species is good. The other thing I think is that um, it's a good thing to have uh, internal, some form of internal steps. Many uh, birds will just flop through the hole and land on the bottom and most of the time get away with that. Um, but if there's just some form of um, step on the way down for birds, particularly more solid birds, um, maybe, you know, um, our white cockatiels will get in there and not damage the eggs or young, but um, heavier birds and even sometimes the light birds, if they don't have an internal step in the next nest box, they'll uh, do some damage to the young. Um, yeah. And security. I think one of the things that people don't sort of pay attention to is they'll hang the box somewhere in there and it'll blow around in the breeze and uh, and that uh, is a, a stressor on the birds. And if the, the uh, nest box is rigid and, and firm and, uh, and, um, and doesn't move around in the weather, the birds feel much more comfortable and secure in such a, a nest facility. Yep. Okay. So those eggs have popped out. Assuming it all went well, yep. Mark. Um, what's your recommendations as soon as those eggs are laid? As soon as they're laid, in how do you yep. do you mean in terms of? Um, I think like the the key thing is if they've gotten the birds to that stage, I like the idea of letting the birds do their own thing. Now, many of the breeders yes. that um, that we deal with will talk to us about artificial incubation, and I think there are. Uh, you know, the, there's a lot of um, experience and science that's gone into developing um, uh, um, a lot of protocols and equipment um, and experience that uh, that helps do artificial incubation. But I've got to say, Brendan, that um, that it really uh, is something that's easy to get wrong, and it's something that even when it seems to go right. I still see lots of birds when they're a little bit older who, um, because they haven't had at least some of the natural socialisation from their parents, um, that uh, those birds don't have normal psychology and often have complications, um, you know, that may may lead to things like anxiety and uh, feather destructive behaviour or um, or a whole bunch of uh, complicated reproductive problems in their life when they're older. So unless there's an overwhelming reason for um, artificial incubation, I'm a real advocate for trying to get the, the, uh, the, the parent birds to rear their own uh, young. I think that's a great thing. But there are times yes. when... Um, you know, when uh, valuable young are abandoned or, um, you know, in zoo situations when um, when uh, particular particularly important species have problems where they want to increase the number relatively quickly. Um, and so using artificial incubation techniques um, is uh, useful 
um, husbandry tool in those circumstances. And I think um, it takes a little bit of experience. People should not um, just automatically think they're going to step up and um, and give this a crack. It's a huge commitment in time to do an artificial incubation properly um, and um, as well as an in investment in time. It's a huge investment in, in finances to have the appropriate commercial incubators and, um, and uh, um, clean environments and food uh, preparation areas that will facilitate successful artificial rearing. And there's a hundred and one different, well, probably a thousand and one recommendations as far as incubators, isn't there, Mark? All these sort of homemade, jerry-built ones, and all sorts of all sorts of things, including um, specific ones marketed for for um, incubating birds um, that are marketed as avian incubators. But um, it's similar to reptiles, isn't it? There's so many, so much out there on Doctor Google as far as what what works and what doesn't work and that's another I think another podcast in itself isn't it incubating um, eggs of any You're kind. you a big list of things we've got to talk about which is a good thing I think. <laughs> that's, that's right that's right. Um, we were going to talk about um, well um, looking after the, the young bird um, but we will do paediatric sort of care and um, neonate care in another podcast I think Mark as we will with the the other topic I was going to talk about um, today or you were going to talk about and that was um, the approach when things don't go wrong and, and obviously things can go wrong in that whole, that whole um that whole continuum there, Mark, I, I suppose that the only comment I'd like to say is that it can be a really frustrating and, and expensive and, and difficult um, time for all if um, there is a a pair of birds that are together, I suppose, like a pair of any any species, including humans, that are trying to reproduce, and and nothing's happening there. It can be a real a real nightmare, isn't and, it, Mark? And a, and a very long process to try and work and things out. And the difficult out. thing too is that um, it's not a continual process. Often, the aviculturists will feel like we've got to do this now because it's going to be spring in twelve months before we have another crack, and and so there yes. is that uh, that pressure of the seasonal reproductive activity that they that sometimes um, is deflected from the breeder onto the veterinarian but um like you said there's a pretty good process in place and I do want to emphasize that starting at the simple things rather than leaping to uh, more complicated diagnostic tests is a is the most successful way to go. It has to be done carefully, Brendan, because um, you know the the client will take it the wrong way if you start to question their husbandry, and and uh, they will have always done the whole Google thing, and they'll know all about everything that has to be done. Um, but it, it, in my experience, it's ninety time nine times out of ten it will be those things that are stopping the birds breeding rather than some complex um, uh, testicular or uh, oviductal disease yes which is what often the client jumps to first off when they come in don't they um, think simple go back to basics I think um, is, is always uh, always the way to go and work the way through it but um, yeah they can end up being a, a very difficult process and a prolonged process can't they the ones that do end up um being hard to nut out what the particular cause of that um that non-breeding um in the animal so we'll cover we'll cover some of the other aspects in 
in future podcasts, I'm sure, Mark, um, perhaps in podcast number 565 mm-hmm. or something like that, um, as we rapidly approaching number 100, Mark, and I just encourage, I think what we need to do is kick off the um, competition too this week, Mark. So the competition is you just send an email to vetgurus at gmail.com to say hello, um, and if you're not too shy, just um, mention where you're from and um, how you heard about our podcast and perhaps send us a, a question or two for a f- future podcast. Um, if not, just send a hello and you're entered into the competition for our 100th episode and you will win a fantastic prize that we still mm-hmm. haven't worked out what we will give to our listeners. Um, so, yeah, but we love hearing from our listeners. So, yeah, send us a send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com and with that Mr. Outro is here and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.